Welcome to today's Scaling with People podcast. I'm Guinevere Crary, your host, and I'm super excited to introduce you to Bethany Corbin. Bethany, why are you on the call today? Who are you? Hey, Guinevere, thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. You know, first and foremost, I am an attorney, um, so I hope your listeners don't tune out just because of that, because I... <laughs> I know we're not always the first people that you want to talk to, but I'm an attorney who works specifically with helping startup companies grow and launch their businesses and seeing them through the scaling phases and the going public phases and really helping them navigate that terrain to see what it's like and also providing business strategy suggestions. So to make sure that the founders and their CEOs and C-suite teams are able to comply with the laws in a manner that's not going to cause them to go under or bankrupt their business. So that that is me in a nutshell. I am the founder and managing partner of Women's Health Innovation Consulting, and I am also the CEO and co-founder of Fem Innovation. That's a great, I mean, so critical. When you think about business, a lot of times you think the most critical thing is to have your finance, your CFO, you know, your head of finance, making sure your money is doing what it needs to do. But in reality, it's really making sure you are legally set up correctly and that you're within the laws that you will allow you to do your business uh, without any penalties or fees or lawsuits. <laughs> oh, absolutely. I can't tell you how many times I encounter founders who unfortunately didn't have the money to hire an attorney at their very early mm -hmm. stages. And by the time they get to that stage, they've already made mistakes that then actually cost more to fix. Yeah, that that I can see that happening so many times. So let's start from scratch. How do you set up your business? Is it LLC? Is it corporate? Is it at, like, are there so many ways to set it up? Oh my goodness, there are so many ways. You know, the first thing to consider whenever you're trying to choose a business structure is really what is your ultimate goal? Is your ultimate goal like, hey, this is just a side business that I'm doing for fun? Or is it, hey, this is something I want to be supporting my life with. And I think this could be a great opportunity for venture capital investment. Um, it, you know, there's some informal structures like sole proprietorships and partnerships. Those don't typically require you to file or register with a state in order to conduct your business. Um, so they're very informal. The a sole proprietorship, right, obviously is, is what it sounds like. It's just you doing your thing, right? Your, your own business under your own personal name. And partnerships are two people or more coming together to work on a business informally. Now, the great thing about sole proprietorships right, and partnerships is you don't have to file anything. As I mentioned, right, it's very low cost involved. And so a lot of people like that structure. The downside, though, is that you don't have the legal protections between your company and yourself. So if something goes wrong, right, or let's say that your business partner, you're in a partnership, your business partner commits fraud or mismanages the assets of your business, there's no protection from somebody going after you personally rather than just the company because you don't actually have a company. So that's why a lot of times founders are going to choose to actually set up a business entity. And there's three main entities um, that are very common for founders. You know, the first is, as you mentioned, the limited liability company, the LLC. The second is the corporation. And then the third is a professional entity. So that third one, the professional entity, really only comes into play if you are working in a profession that is typically regulated. So like, for instance, myself, I'm a lawyer, we're a regulated profession, we would have to set up a professional entity, depending on the jurisdiction that we're in. Similar for doctors, right, accountants, they typically fall under that same umbrella. LLC and corporations, though, they are going to be the most common ones that you encounter. So the difference between which one you want to set up partly has to do with taxes, and also partly has to do with what your end goal is. 
So if your end goal is to get investment, let's say that you want family and friends, angel investors, VC investor, um, investors, private equity investors, then you're going to want to have a corporation because that's the type of entity and vehicle that they are comfortable investing in. And if that's your end goal, you're going to want to have a Delaware corporation, typically a C-Corp. Um, if, however, you say, you know what, venture capital investment's not for me, I just want to have a solid business that I'm running, then you might look into something like the limited liability company, which has tax advantages. So with an LLC, you get the benefit of having a separate structure that actually protects you from liability. Um, if somebody were to come after your company, right, that liability doesn't pierce that veil and go to you as an individual, as long as there's not, you know, fraud or something like that. Sure. But then typically, you also have the benefit of having pass-through taxation. So what that means is that you get to report profits and losses on your personal tax returns. That's kind of the downside of going with a corporation, is that depending on the tax status you elect, what happens is there can be double taxation, meaning that the profits are taxed first at the corporation level and then at the personal tax level as they get passed through um, as dividends. So those are some of the key considerations to think about. And if, for instance, you're doing an LLC, right, and you're not looking, looking for thinking about investment, you can typically form an LLC by filing the appropriate paperwork in your home state. That was such a thorough explanation. I wish I had heard that before I set my business up. But I will say after hearing that, I thankfully set my business up correctly. And I hope all of the listeners out there feel the same way. But if someone's out there going, oh, crap, I didn't do it right. What is the next step for them to fix this? Yeah, you know, it really depends on how they're set up now. You can always, for instance, go from a sole proprietorship to an LLC. Let's say that you're set up as an LLC and you say, oh, no way, I want to have corporate investment, right? I think a corporation is better. There's a couple of ways that you can switch gears. You know, the first is if you didn't have a formal structure set up and you say, now I want to be an LLC or a corporation or a professional entity, you can go ahead and file the appropriate paperwork with the state in which you're going to be formed. If you're an LLC and you say, now I want to be a corporation, most states will have a form through which you can file to convert your LLC into a corporation. Now, the thing to think about there, though, is if you do want to have investors, that can be a little bit of a red flag if they see, okay, well, you started as an LLC, right? Then, if you, especially if you're a multi-member LLC, meaning you have more than one co-founder who started the company with you, you will have to have a conversion document that shows how the equity in the LLC is now converting into equity in the corporation, and that gets a bit messy. So your other alternative is just to dissolve the LLC and then refile as a corporation. Mm -hmm. uh, the main thing that you wanna be thinking about too as you're going through this is making sure that you're caught up with any tax liability that you may have from your current organization um, and that you understand you know, the costs um, and, and the tax implications of switching over to a different structure. That makes sense. So I remember when I was setting my business up, I, I thankfully had a really good friend who said, you should trademark your business. And I went through the process and, you know, got my process completed. But, you know, thinking back, like, okay, but why? What are the benefits and why should I do that? Why should businesses do that? You have a very brilliant friend uh, because <laughs> I can't tell you how many companies don't think about the trademark process until it's too late. So trademarks are important for two reasons. 
First, they can protect your intellectual property, right? And when we're talking about your intellectual property here, what we're typically talking about is your brand name, right? That's kind of your name of your company, right? Or what you want to be known for. That brand name is what you want to protect so that somebody off the street can't just say, oh, I like that name. I'm going to take that name. I'm going to do the exact same pro you know, products or services. I'm going to confuse the consumers and they're all going to come to me. That's the real reason trademark protection uh, is in effect. So that's kind of the first thing, right? You're protecting your own business. And then the second reason that you need to check on trademarks is even if you say, you know what, I don't want I don't want a trademark or I don't think, you know, that this is something anybody would try to steal. What you need to also make sure is that you are not infringing on somebody else's trademark. Mm -hmm. And so, for instance, I had a client that I had worked with who had not looked into the trademark name, they went ahead and they set up their brands, right? They had marketing, they started making labels on their products, they were putting things on the shelves. And so the you know their customers had come to know them by that name. What ended up happening is they received a letter in the mail from another company that had trademarked that same name. And the company issued a cease and desist letter and said, if you don't stop using our name within seven days, we're going to file a trademark infringement lawsuit against you. And a lawsuit like that at this early stage is not something that any founder wants to be dealing with. Um, and it can also cause you reputational harm, not only from a consumer perspective, but from an investor perspective, if that's what you're looking for, because they're going to see this as a big risk and you didn't do your legal due diligence. So what ended up happening, this client was very scared. You know, they thought, great, now I have to rebrand. I just established all of this consumer credit. What do I do? they came up with a really creative solution. They actually started a contest for rebranding their company name and asked for consumer input. They said, we're going to be changing our name, vote on it, you know, send in ideas. And so they were able to keep their consumer goodwill by involving their consumers in that rebrand. But the rebrand itself was very expensive. And so those were additional costs that could have been avoided if the trademark process had been started in the first place. That is a really creative way. I think that's great. When you include your customer base and get them involved, get more buy-in, and then you're not like, hey, don't forget, we're now called XYZ and people forget and you know, now we're going to a different product that they thought was yours and no longer is. Yeah, that's so important. I, I, I do think that a lot of companies do forget about that. And then by the time that they, they go to get it, it's you know too late or you know they realize they're infringing on others and Wow, it's kind of the same thing as, you know, when you do your website, what do you call your company and what's your website name? I mean, I've had a, a customer who wanted to have their website and, um, you know, a lot of these weird IT, I don't even know what they call them, but like people will go out and buy domain names so that when companies start to create their businesses, they can sell this domain name at an exorbitant amount. And so that's also another important factor too, right, is making sure that whatever you're calling your business you're going to get the website you're looking for um, and and not have problems there as well. Oh, it's a hugely important detail. You know, and having been a founder myself, one of the tips that I always use is, you know, once I've personally or, right, or my team has decided on a name, before I do anything publicly, I go and I check the availability of the website domain that I want and the social media accounts. And if I can't get the website domain I want or the social media accounts are already taken, that's a red flag that somebody else may already have a trademark or be using this name out in commerce. Um, it, even if I can get those 
names. It doesn't mean somebody isn't trademarked it already, right, or isn't already using it. Um, but it means there might be less of a chance of that. So I typically do that before I post anything publicly to prevent that exact scenario of somebody going in and scooping up the domain names and the social media accounts. And when we think about, you know, domain names and that type of thing, those are pretty cheap to come by and purchase. But if you, let's say that, for instance, you find that your domain name isn't available because somebody scooped it up, right, purchased it, it can cost you more if that's the name you end up wanting to go with, because then you've typically got to work with a broker who can then try to facilitate a transaction with the individual who owns the website name. And whereas the website domain itself may have cost you 10 right, or $20 initially, you can pay a couple thousand of dollars to get that domain name afterwards. Yep, absolutely. I've seen it. I've seen it. It's so true. So yeah. true. the other thing to do that I did when I created my business is I Googled it. Google yes. my name to see what it, what came up. You know, there's something that's going to lead people to other loca- other things. Um, so talking about your website, so legal website, what needs to happen? What do you need to put on your website? Uh, what are some things that top of mind that when you're building your website or refreshing it, or maybe you just need to go back and look and see, do I have these things? Yeah, it's a great question. You know, the first is always to consider the purpose of your website. Are you collecting any data through that website? And by data, what I mean is, are you tracking through like Google Analytics or any other types of cookies or analytics software, who's visiting your page or where they're coming from or what type of website traffic you're getting? If you are, that's a form of data. Additionally, do you have a contact us form, right? Or or a place where consumers can input their information to sign up for your newsletter. Any of those types of consumer entry points, you're collecting data. And so if you're doing any of that on your webpage, you need to make sure that you have a privacy notice, um, also called a privacy policy, on that webpage that details how you're using that data. The most common mistake I see startups make, and, and I get this all the time, they say, oh, yeah, I have a privacy policy. I copied and pasted it from my competitor. And I can't tell you how much trouble you can get into for that because the Federal Trade Commission is looking at consumer websites. They're looking at consumer products. And what they want to make sure is that there is full transparency and honesty between what a company tells consumers and what they're actually doing. And no matter how similar your product or service is to your competitor, I can tell you there is no way that you are using data 100% exactly the same way as your competitor. So you need to make sure that you've got developed for you a personalized privacy notice for that website. And what that notice should have in it, it should be saying what this website is about, what types of data you collect, why you're collecting it, how you're using it how and whether you're disclosing it to any type of third party, right, or downstream vendor, uh, the types of cookies or analytic tools that you're using, um, how consumers would be notified if there's an update to the privacy policy, and where they can go to if they have questions. The other thing to think about is there are sometimes, you know, websites that may have educational material. We see this a lot in the healthcare industry. Uh, we have a lot of educational websites for healthcare. There, you want to make sure that you're putting accurate disclaimers on your website as well to make sure you're saying, hey, you know what, this isn't medical advice, right? We're disclaiming medical advice mm-hmm. or we're disclaiming financial advice, you know, depending on the type of service you're providing, making sure that it's clear to consumers what you are and also what you are not. 
And then if you have a website um, that facilitates any type of consumer transaction, right? Like let's say a consumer can come to your website and sign up for a subscription model, right? Or input their payment details. You want to make sure that you have the appropriate terms of use on your website um, or wherever the consumers can go to make those purchases that basically sets forth, you know, how disputes are going to be governed, that, you know, this is how their credit card data is being used. Um, they're consenting to the use of the credit card data for this. And also, if you have any type of subscription model, making sure that you have an easy way for consumers to come back to your website to cancel it. Um, the other things that you also want to be thinking about with respect to websites, right, is making sure that any content you have on it is not infringing on anybody else's copyrights. Um, so making sure that you have the right to post whatever it is that you are adding to your website, that's also a big one. Wow, that's that's a lot right there. I'm thinking, man, I probably need to go back and look at mine. How does that like I heard a lot of words like about consumer. Do you this consumer also business to business? If if you're a, a business that is only focusing on selling to other businesses, how does that relate? Yeah, great question. You know, a lot of the same principles apply. Um, we see this specifically, you know, in healthcare, for example, where a company may be selling their product directly to providers, right? Or they might be a healthcare organization that is selling to another healthcare organization or an employer plan. And so the same principles apply. You want to make sure that you've got that honest and transparent privacy policy, privacy notice, whatever you want to call it, um, the terms of use, and also making sure that anything that's on your website, you have the right to be using. The other thing that I did forget to mention um, when we were talking about those privacy policies uh, that founders often make a mistake on too is they think, great, I've got a privacy policy up and I, I don't need to ever look at this again. <laughs> and wrong. <laughs> right. So anytime that you change your website, anytime that you update your products or services or you form a new business partnership where you might be selling or disclosing data, just make sure that you're going through and looking at your privacy policy anytime that happens or if it doesn't happen, do it at least once a year and make those updates. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, I'm an HR person. We're all, we're constantly updating our policies. So why yeah. not this one too, right? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. You know all about compliance there. Yeah, absolutely. So um, tell me a little bit about what you've experienced and been seeing lately around cybersecurity, because I feel like that's becoming a hot topic. And uh, do, do founders of smaller startups need to be concerned that they're going to be a target? Oh, what a good question. <laughs> you know, Cybersecurity has been a really hot topic lately uh, from a couple of different perspectives. What I would absolutely say is if you're collecting any type of personally identifiable information or sensitive information, and what I mean by that is things like healthcare data, credit card data, right? Things that if you as a consumer would say, if that got out, I would be uncomfortable if that got out or it could lead to identity theft. If you're collecting any of that type of data, you want to make sure that you are using the most reasonable, up-to-date cybersecurity protections um, and, and software out there to protect your business. And so what I mean by that really is you don't want to be seen as being negligent with consumer data, especially if it falls into one of those sensitive categories. And so what can happen in the risk that you have is that there could be a cybersecurity breach, meaning that data that you have a third party now has in an unauthorized manner. And what happens then is not only are you at li you know liable because there has been a breach, but you have a lot of reputational harm where consumers no longer want to do business with you because you did experience this type of a breach. 
Um, you could also potentially be getting blackmailed from the individual who hacked or the organization that hacked you. Um, they could be asking for ransom, that type of thing. And that can slow down or completely halt your entire business operations if you don't have access to the data and your product or service relies on that data. So thinking about cybersecurity early is really, really important. It's also important whenever you think about scaling. Because here's the thing, as you want to scale, you typically will need to enter into partnerships with other organizations, right? Larger organizations, whether it's to get your products on the shelves, whether it's to get your services into their office buildings. Um, so you're going to need to do partnerships. Those larger organizations will typically have security standards that they'll require you to agree to or comply with or have minimum requirements that you have to have implemented before they will go ahead and allow you to come into their organization as a partner. What I often see is that a lot of startups say, you know what, I am a startup, I am low risk, right? I think I'm low risk. Who is going to come after me? I'm so small. What data could I possibly have that they want? Well, even if you are small, and, I, and, and that's wrong for one reason that I'll get back to, um, but let's say that, that all of that is true. It's going to take you time to implement cybersecurity measures in order to be able to contract with these partners. So by not doing so at an early stage, you're actually forestalling and limiting your growth opportunities because once you get ready to contract with a larger partner, you're going to have to say, oh, wait, I don't have those security requirements in place. Let's pause this deal for, for four or five months while I go back and I redo and I build a security framework. The other reason I say that it's wrong to think about yourself as just a small startup and cybersecurity doesn't apply to me is because a lot of hackers are getting more sophisticated and they know that startups oftentimes don't have sufficient security protections. So if you're operating in a field like healthcare that has a lot of highly valuable data, they are starting to come after startup companies now. And they also see startup companies as that weak link into the systems of larger organizations. So I would absolutely start thinking about cybersecurity now um, in the early stages of your startup company. And if it's something you didn't think about, take a break and say, yeah, let's think about this. What do we need to have in place? How are we protecting this data? And is cyber insurance something we should start to consider at our stage? Yeah, I, I think it's so important as as a leader, as the founder, as the executive, it's your job to think to think about what's around the corner. Yeah. And that's such a key thing. It might not be something where you get an attack now, but if I'm thinking around the corner and I want these partnerships, I'm going to need it. So might as well get it done now. So I'm not forestalling that potential partnership and the revenue that can come from it. Here's the thing too, having a sufficient privacy and cybersecurity framework in place. Yes, it is an added cost, but it is also a market differentiator and a market advantage because a lot of companies are not doing it. And so we're now entering a world in which privacy is becoming a huge concern for consumers and also for investors if you are starting to look at investment. They want to see that you have privacy and security frameworks in place. And so you can actually use that as a market differentiator and add it into your marketing to get more consumers to adopt your product. So speaking of marketing, how do you look at legal like from the perspective of marketing and what you need to do from a legality perspective when you're doing your marketing? Yeah, it's it's an interesting question because a lot of times people think marketing is its own separate world and should not have any type of interaction with legal. And here's why you need to have legal involved. 
Because as a founder, you need to understand what you can or can't say to the general public about your products. And I'll give you an example. And this is um, in the healthcare context, because that's where I work a lot. But um, we had a client one time who was building essentially a telehealth company. And it, it has a very unique structure to it. And we had built that out and we had told the founders um, what the structure was. We had explained it to them. And the next thing that we know, we're looking on their website and they are talking about themselves as if they're an insurance company. And it was it's very interesting, right? Because you might think, oh, what are those language differences? But what happened is they then got an opportunity to speak with um, a reporter who then did her due diligence and she started looking into them as if they were an insurance company, found that they were not registered with any of the insurance commissions in those states. And so she reached out to those insurance commissions, right, doing her job as a reporter. And next thing we know, we have five insurance investigations into our company that is actually not an insurance company. But we then had to explain to five different state regulators why we didn't meet those requirements. We had to explain the entire structure. We had to go to meetings with them and, and submit all the documentation. And it was all because of how that company was marketing. And because there wasn't a connection between what marketing was saying and legal review to make sure that that was accurate and something that could be said. We see this as well, you know, for instance, in supplements, um, there's limitations on what you can or can't say about supplements because they're typically not regulated by the FDA. So what kind of claims can you be making about that? So those are the types of things where it's really helpful to have legal just take a glance through your website or your marketing materials because they can also not only say, you know, from a legal perspective, oh, gosh, that's high risk, but they can also say, oh, you're portraying yourself as this, but that's not what you actually are, right? You're actually X, Y, Z instead. And we think that's going to cause consumer confusion and deception. And so they can kind of pinpoint risks like that, that can help you to mitigate your exposure longer term and down the line, but can also be beneficial from a marketing perspective and a growth perspective, because it will bring you more in alignment with changing your messaging so that it's clear about what you actually do. That uh, food for thought for sure on that one. I never thought about it from that perspective. Uh, and especially in the regulated industry, you got to be really careful for sure. So just wrapping it up here, any last final thoughts or tips or tricks that you would love founders and CEOs to know? Yeah, you know, I, you know having been both a lawyer and a founder, I think it's incredibly amazing that others are navigating this space and bringing their products to life. You know, I would say don't get discouraged. Um, all of us go through these types of hardships, right? And if we don't have something perfectly created or we're not 100% legally compliant, um, don't freak out. Make sure that you're doing, you know, kind of your annual risk analyses and gap analyses to see where your highest exposure is. Make sure that you're also working with a lawyer who is familiar with the startup world uh, because there's there's so many attorneys out there, but what you need to make sure that you've got is somebody who knows how the startup world operates so that they can move quickly with you because a lot of times startup is very fast paced. Yeah. So just making yeah. So just making sure that you know you're not getting discouraged that you're working with legal counsel to maximize your risk mitigation techniques and that you're working with somebody who knows this space and can help you move quickly and innovate quickly. Excellent. Well, thank you, Bethany. This was really enlightening. I hope the listeners got something out of it. I know I certainly did. Thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it. And everyone listening, have a wonderful day.